Boom, put boom, boom, side, B side, what side are you on? Welcome back. It's another episode of A Side, B Side podcast. How's it going, Adam? It is good, Brooke. How are you? Good, good. Anything new this week? Uh, not, not a whole lot. It's, uh, it's been a very strange weather week here in Minnesota, lots of, uh, storms. So, uh, it was the first time, uh, that I've been in the spring in this apartment and it's the highest I've ever lived. I'm on the fourth floor. I've never lived this high up in the air before. And so it was, uh, I was like a little kid ex- experiencing a thunderstorm and lightning in an entirely different way this week. So that was really cool. It's one of those simple, uh, surprises that really made my day. Just opened up all the blinds and was able to kind of get an entirely different view of a storm than I ever had before. Oh, cool. Any new shows this week? Uh, yeah, I started watching The Irregulars. Uh, it is a new release on Netflix that takes place in uh, London, sort of during the Sherlock Holmes classic era uh, and it deals with uh, the street kids that he would uh, employ to help find, you know, information out or go places that he, as a you know well-to-do person, couldn't go or couldn't get information. Uh, and it's got a very um, like m- mystical, magical demons, magic, otherworldly. It's got a sort of mystic level to it too. I'm only uh, two episodes in, but um, so far I've really enjoyed it. And I think it's going to be super interesting. Uh, And in the first one, the, one of the, you know, main characters who's only in the first episode is played by the hound from uh, game of Thrones. So that was really interesting. Uh, The second episode deals with the tooth fairy. So yeah, it's, it's a little intense at times for me, uh, but it's definitely kind of got, I don't remember if you, do you remember the whole, um, the Johnny Depp Sleepy Hollow movie from way back when? Mm-hmm. It's kind of got that vibe to it where it's scary and it's tense, but it's just enough that it's it's not gory, but it's just enough to kind of unsettle you. It's kind of that type of uh, vibe to it. And so far, I really like it, but I can't watch more than one episode at a time or I weird myself out. Interesting. And you said that's Netflix? Yeah. And it just came out this week. It's one of those that I had uh, kind of starred when they were like, this is coming up. You might be interested. And it's, uh, it's really good so far. So I'm encouraged. But again, I'm only two episodes in. Uh, are you current on Falcon and Winter Soldier? I am. I really enjoyed Friday or this most recent episode, episode number three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that there was a moment that has broken the internet already. Baron Zemo dancing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love stealing those moves. There's a character that we see at the very end. I don't want to give any spoilers away, but man, are they tying some things together and it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I mean, I almost kicked myself because I was like, of course, that has to be part of this if there's this other character involved. But I I didn't see it coming at all. Like Mm -mm. even even when it leading up to that moment, like I should have figured it out sooner. And I didn't until the reveal. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's uh, it is a very well written one thing that Marvel does is they do superhero movies. I mean, they get it right. They know how to, they know what they're doing. And they tie everything together. So it's like something that happened in a movie five years ago doesn't just drop off the face of the earth. It'll come back. And that's kind of, that's a level of planning and detail that you just, you don't get. I mean, how many times do you watch a TV show and then this one character suddenly just gets written off the show and you never talk about him again? I mean, that wasn't there like an ex on Roseanne. Wasn't there like another daughter at one point that just never came back? No, they switched daughters twice. They switched daughters. Okay. Maybe it was a, there was one sitcom where they just like neglected to talk about a kid anymore. Family matters. Oh, is it family matters? Okay. That's all. Yeah. With Steve Urkel. Yep. Little Judy went to bed one night. We never saw her again. Yeah. That's not going to happen in the Marvel Universe. In the Marvel Universe, we won't see her for like seven years and she'll come back in an entirely different moment. 
Yeah, there's some good callback jokes from movies and stuff like that. So it's it's been really pretty good. Um, I watched a new show on HBO Max called Made for Love. If you watched How I Met Your Mother, then you would recognize this character from, oh, like five minutes of the very last episode. Um, her, Christine Malati. She was the mother. Spoiler from, you know, a sitcom, you know, 10 years ago. But um Basically, her husband has designed a way for couples to be in sync or whatever. And it's just it's it's kind of a fun. It's a real quick watch. Um, she's really pretty good. She's been on Black Mirror. She's been she's been on a couple of things. Um, so uh, that that's interesting. I think new episodes come out Thursdays on that one. So. That's really the only thing new I've I've watched this week. I've just been busy doing lots of other things because it's been nice weather and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's spring and summer's coming, and it's uh feels like there's a lot more to. And I don't know how things are there in, in Kentucky, but a lot of people up here in Minnesota are getting their shots, and you can tell that people are starting to uh, go out. Things are slowly but surely kind of reawakening. Uh, and it's very fitting for spring. It definitely feels like we're coming out of hibernation a little bit and kind of we're little blades of grass that are reaching towards the sun. I want to say thank you uh, to some of our, our, our listeners. Uh, so I posted a joke shirt on our Instagram and I said, it's a great shirt for Mother's Day. And it made reference to Mary Ann Cotton from episode 36, who is a terrible person and a horrible mom and wife. And it was yes. a complete joke. And actually a couple of people have like uh, contacted me and they're like, no, but can I, can I get that for real? So if you <laughs> would like that, if you want to know what we're talking about, well, you have to go to our Instagram page and uh, look at the, mm -hmm. the photo yourself. And if you want it, yeah, absolutely. You can get it. Cause <laughs> I thought it was just a funny joke. And like, it has turned out that uh, it has become a thing that people are like, no, no, but I really want it. So. Yeah. Well, sometimes, you know, it's those happy accidents that are uh, the, the big success. So this week, episode 39 means I start first. Mm -hmm. All right. So it's been a minute, meaning, you know, three episodes since we talked about a female. So why not talk about one this week? So this okay. week we're talking about Marie Besnard, a.k.a. the good lady of Laudan. So Marie was born August 15th of 1896 in Loudoun, France, as Marie Josephine Philippine de Valland. Marie was, and if you are in France, and I butchered that, I am so sorry. Um, Marie was an only child, and she was often described by her childhood playmates as somewhat mean. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because normally we hear, oh, they were okay or nice or mm, she was shy. No, Marie was somewhat mean. In 1920, at the age of 23, Marie married her cousin, August uh, Antigone. He was 30 and the pair were together until his death in 1927. So about seven years. The official cause of his death was originally listed as tuberculosis. Less than two years later, Marie is married yet again. This time, she marries a gentleman named Leon Besnard, who actually owned a rope shop in Loudoun. The, Be the Besnards lived a really comfortable life. It was modest, but comfortable until 1940 when um, his parents inherited money. The couple then were like, hey, you want to come live with us? Come on, we got room. <laughs> So they We've invite, always loved you so much. Right. They invite, the Besnards invite his parents to move in with them. And then shortly after, Leon's father passes away unexpectedly. The, hmm. the cause of death was listed as mushrooms. They were poison. Yeah. So it was long after. By long, I mean three months. When Leon's which isn't long, no. When Leon's mother passed away from pneumonia, so the estate, of course, is left to Leon and his sister Lucy. 
it was supposed to be split evenly, but well, shockingly, I mean, shockingly, Lucy had an mm. untimely passing that was attributed to suicide a few months after the death of her mom. I mean, and I guess at I that mean, time, that classic, yeah. It was probably, you know, easy to pass off like my mom and my dad are gone and I'm so depressed. Don't think she was really. Oh, yeah. I guess that that does make some sense. I was thinking like, you know, that classic thing where you inherit a ton of money and then you kill yourself. Well, I'm thinking that, you know, at that time, it was probably easy to pass off of, oh, fragile female. She was just depressed. That's fair. That's fair. So um, around the same time, on May 14th of 1940, Marie, Marie's father, Pierre de Vailard, I think I'm saying this correctly this time, he unfortunately died to what was supposed to be a cerebral hemorrhage. Hint, it probably wasn't. Supposed. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. This death added to the couple's ever-expanding bank account. So now, not long after the succession of family deaths, the couple sublet a room to a wealthy, childless couple, Toussaint and Blanche Rivet. It was Blanche LeBeau Rivet and Toussaint Rivet. The couple was friends with Marie's husband. The Rivets were so grateful to the Besnards that they made them, dun, 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 beneficiaries of their will. I'm like, shocked. How grateful are you that you're like, Oh, you let me live with you? Oh, thank you. Okay, I'm going to put you in my will. What? What? I, I mean, I guess they, they were really charming people, evidently. My thing is, okay, I'm not victim blaming either here, but if you're that wealthy, get your own dang place. Yeah. I'm just saying. Maybe they just were lonely. They, Even wanted, they wanted to live with people. Okay, but enough to make them the beneficiary? I mean, I get it. They were childless, whatever, but mm, mm, donate it to charity. I don't know. Okay, so before we discuss the rivets further, let's talk about Marie and Leon and their other unfortunate family members. So Marie was apparently the brains of this money-making operation, and Leon was her ever-loyal, ever-willing accomplice. So the first of the family members to mysteriously die were Leon's single, or a phrase of the time, spinster aunts. I hate that phrase. It sounds so terrible. It does. I don't think it was meant as a compliment. No, obviously. So they thought that the young, the couple was young and wholesome. And the first aunt died in 1938. The second, two years later, after drinking a bottle of wine that had been gifted to her. Both Leon's, both of Leon's aunts had, as spinsters seem to always have, some pretty good money set aside. And of course they both gifted it to Leon as a reward for his kindness in their lives. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're going to go back to the rivets. So the rivets were apparently advanced in age and, and not really, really healthy. And the Besnards promised to help them out and to take care of them, which is, why they were so grateful but even still hire a nurse whatever right so shortly after the rivets moved in they both fell fatally ill Toussaint contracted what was thought to be pneumonia and he died on July 14th of 1940 Blanche died of aortitis which is an infl inflammation of the aorta that can cause an aneurysm or occlusion. Her death was over a year and a half later on December 27th of 1941. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm -hmm. It was the death of Marie's elderly cousins that finally, finally began to arouse some suspicions. Began. <laughs> okay, so... First was Pauline uh, Bodenau, Boden Bodenau, who died on July 1st of 1945 after mistakenly eating a bowl of lye, thinking it was yeah. dessert. Because who doesn't leave a bowl of lye around for people to accidentally eat? I mean, don't you? I've, I've got several. I've got three out. 
I mean, yeah, I just I keep it in the fridge next to the grapes just in case, you know. I don't want it to go bad. Little drizzle here, a little drizzle there, you know, whatever. What what does lie even look like? Um, that's a good question. It comes in many, it comes in different forms, actually. Okay. So then <laughs> the exact same thing happened to another cousin, a cousin, Virginie Leoron, on July 4th of 1945 so just several days later like is nobody like oh she died from eating out of a bad bowl oh here's a bowl i'm gonna eat out of that what yeah i mean it kind of looks like coconut i guess (sighs) so both of these cousins had marie listed as the only beneficiary on Mm. their wills so now friends and neighbors are starting to get suspicious but Nothing formal has begun. No investigations, nothing. It's just people are starting to, there's whispers. They're like, hey, a lot of people keep dying over at that house. What's going on? So the next unfortunate family member to fall victim to these two was Marine, Marie's own mother, Marie Louise Develaud, who died, who supposedly died of old age just six months after cousin Virginie on January 16th of 1946, she was 71 years old. This of course gave Marie yet another inheritance. So normally when we're talking about females and their victims, we're getting insurance of some kind, but see, she didn't need that because they all gave her inheritances. Right, they, got, they had saved up some money and it went right to her. So the base nards, efforts had given them get this six houses an inn a cafe and several stud farms so up until this point it's been you know husband and wife team effort what's the old saying only two can keep a secret if one of them is dead Leon got the go Leon was not safe from Marie's grasp. He found himself engaged in an affair with a woman. Her name was oh. Lu- Louise Pintau, and she was actually the postmistress in Loudoun. He had even invited her to move into the Besnard home. Marie had a little side action of herself. She had grown fond of a gentleman that wasn't Leon. He was a German ex-prisoner of war. Leon believed that he was being poisoned. So he even remarked that she had served him soup in a bowl that already had another liquid in it before she put the soup in it. Dude, if you saw another liquid in the bowl, why did you eat the soup? Yeah, well, you're like, hmm, this might have something in it, but it's delicious. It wasn't water. She didn't just wash the bowl and put the soup in there. So why'd you eat it? And again, we already not victim know that blaming. she uses lie. But. Right. I was gonna say not victim blaming, but he's a murderer, so I'm I'm victim blaming this time. Yeah, we we can blame him. I don't even know if we call him a victim. This is just you know par for the course with what was going on. Right. So Leon dies on October 25th of 1947 from uremia, which is a condition where there's an unusually high level of waste products in the blood due to kidney failure. Mm -hmm. Mm. Mm -hmm. So after Leon's death, his mistress, Louise, sent a letter to the public prosecutor telling the prosecutor that Leon had expressed his concerns to her regarding the fact that he felt like he was being poisoned. Initially, the public prosecutor was like, "Mm, yeah, whatever just completely dismissed the letter but Mm -hmm. there were more demands for an investigation not just by louise but others as well remember initially there were whispers and now the husband is dead it's like all right come on come on come on yeah all these people keep dying so the prosecutors gave in and leon's body was exhumed you know you used to hear about exhumations a lot. I feel like you don't hear about exhumation so much anymore. Maybe because they do so much more yeah. testing. But I swear, I feel Maybe. like people you they 
that used to be like the go-to list. Ah, we got to exhume the body. Exhume well, the know, body. And it seems like now it's way harder to do. Like maybe they put a bunch of rules in place, but it sounds like anytime, even on a TV show, they're like, well, this isn't going to be easy. But like in olden stories, it's like, well, we know where George is. Let's go get it. Yeah. It just, it's, it's wild. So like I said, it was due to all of the attention. There was death threats sent to some of the local gossips. Louise's house was broken into and all of the gifts that had been given to her by Leon were destroyed. Other accusers were forced to leave Loudon after their homes were burned down. So it's like, all right, we got to do something. So again, Leon's body yeah. was exhumed on May 11th of 1949. An autopsy of Leon's body showed that he had ingested large amounts of, can you guess? Why? No. What's another go-to for women? Arsenic. Yes. He had ingested large amounts of arsenic over a period of time. This led to the exhumation of other bodies and the discovery that, well, there was a lot more going on. So Leon's parents, his sister, the Rivets, Marie's cousins, her first husband, mother and father had all ingested arsenic. Marie was arrested and charged with 13 counts of murder on July 21st of 1949. The only thing that makes this story a little different is she did she didn't have any children. There was no children involved this time. Yeah, which is kind of crazy because they had all that money. Maybe that's why they kept taking people in. They were like, oh, well, we don't have kids, so we can take these older people. Oh, that's probably why they didn't have kids because they had all that money and wanted to spend it on themselves. That's fair. So Marie's first trial began in February of 1952. Forensic surgeon, Dr. George Baroud, I am totally butchering these French names. And again, I apologize. He was the one who discovered 19.45 milligrams in ars of arsenic in Leon's body. In Dr. Baroud's autopsy report, it showed that each victim had been poisoned slowly over time with arsenic. The abnormal presence of arsenic were confirmed by Professor Frederick Juliet Curie. So Dr. Baroud had difficulty explaining and defending his finding under examination from Marie's attorneys. Her attorneys also accused the lab of mishandling some of the evidence and they presented their own evidence that said the arsenic in the bodies could have came from the soil. You know, it's in the soil, in the cemetery where they're buried. How can you put that on my client? She didn't do anything. It just seeped into their bones. Whatever. Through the casket. So unable to come to a verdict, the trial was delayed and Marie remained in prison until 1945. Again, the courts were unable to come to a verdict and they delayed. Again, this time allowing her to post bond. She was not recalled until 1961. Now think about that. She was initially arrested in 1949. Trial delay, trial delay, trial delay. She's released. She doesn't go back on trial till 1961. It's a long time to spend that money. Whew. This time, the trial ended with a verdict. More than 11 years after being arrested... Marie Besnard was found not guilty what? on all charges on December 12th of 1961. It only took the jury three hours and 25 minutes to deliberate. She died an absolutely free woman in 1980, presumably from natural causes, but she hasn't been exhumed. So we don't know. Well, she didn't have any kids that would grow up to kill her. So that maybe that's why she didn't have kids. Right. I feel like it should be noted, at least in my opinion, with the advances in technology and updates in legal proceedings. If this case occurred today, 100%, in my opinion, she'd be convicted. Hmm. Why did it only take three hours for the, like, the jury was just like, nope, she didn't do it. Let's get lunch. Basically. 
It's been 11 years. Oh, well, who knows? Maybe they were. And I, I'm sure a big part, you know, people get nervous public speaking. It's one thing being a brilliant scientist in a lab, but then you're in front of people trying to explain it. If you've ever tried to yeah. explain a particular thing of your job to, and you try to dumb it down, sometimes you're like, uh, so I hit the button and then it makes a noise. And, uh, like if I, like when I do that at work, sometimes, I mean, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time, but you know, every once in a while you just are like, uh, I hit the button and then the music and then, uh, and then talking and then, uh, and then, yeah. Uh, I mean, it happens. People freeze. Yeah. Not everybody. And people are notoriously bad witnesses, like especially eyewitnesses. We don't remember what we think we remember. Yeah. So I think it was just an issue of the doctor just not being able to explain in layman's terms, the arsenic in the bodies. Uh, in 1986, the television movie L'Affaire Marie Besnard or the Marie Besnard Affair won the Sept d'Or French Television Award for French actress Alice Saprich. She received the Best Actress Award in the role of Marie Besnard. Director Yves André, Yves André Hubbard won for Best Made TV Movie and Frederick uh, Potclair won for Best Writer. In 2006, the television movie Marie Besnard, and I'm totally going to say it wrong, <laughs> Les Empoisonneuse, or Marie Besnard the Poisoner, ended up in, uh, winning an Emmy for Muriel Robin as Marie Besnard. English historian Richard Cobb depicts a sympathetic version of Marie in a lengthy essay in his book called uh, about French life called A Second Identity that was written in 1969. But there you go. That is the story of Marie Besnard, who is accused of killing 13 people, including her husband, her parents, his parents, her sister-in-law, and some good friends, and completely got away with murder. There you have it. That, my friends, my dear desktop detectives, that is your B-side for this week. Uh, do you think the lady would have gotten away with it nowadays with podcasts? Or would we have caught her by now? No, I don't think she would have gotten away. I don't even think it would have gotten to the point of having to need a podcast. I think nowadays the jury would have been like, nah, girl, you guilty. Yeah. Well, sometimes I wonder when we talk about these older stories, if like, just because the death was a more common thing, just people die and we didn't have as many like you don't have science and me medical technology to the point where we could you know notice things ahead of time that it took people getting to like 13 deaths before somebody was like hey that's a lot of deaths well i also don't think that up until recently i mean like maybe as recently as what the 80s with eileen warnos i don't think that people took female killing seriously you know, yeah. Eileen came around and then it was kind of like, oh, wow, like women can be brutal killers. And it's like, well, yeah, they've always been. But she yeah. just kind of, I don't know. I think I think with her, it really shifted the view. People started looking into it more. and Or just realizing, hey, women are devious and evil. <laughs> Well, it's like when your friend buys a new car and then you're driving around and you just see that car everywhere because now it's on your mind. Yeah, kind and of, you yeah. You, they were always, those cars were always there, but you just didn't notice them because you weren't looking for them and now you're looking for them. Right, exactly. So now, you know, you hear more about female killers, but I just think especially, you know, even though this was in the early 19, well, early to mid 1900s, um, you know, when you think yeah. about, Marianne Cotton or Nanny Doss that's in the late 1800s, early 1900s, people just didn't look at women at, you know, people looked at women as, oh, they're dainty and feminine and fragile. They could never do that. Right. I like the idea of serial killers is a relatively modern terminology. I mean, nobody was like Grog the serial killer caveman. Well, for men, not so much, but more women. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you think of Jack the Ripper, you know, he's a serial killer, but right. it's just 
people didn't believe women could be serial killers. People, people doubt women. Look, trust me, anything a man can do, a woman can do and better like serial killing. I'm just saying. I don't know if that's a good thing though. But it's a real thing. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, it's a thing that happens. (laughs) So on the A side today, we're going to talk about something that popped into my brain because I am super excited to go back to the movie theater. Uh, Brooke, are movie theaters, have they been open down there in Kentucky consistently? Did they close for a while? No, how, they, how were... they closed. They're just now starting to reopen. Okay, good. Because that's that's pretty much the same uh, you know, time frame that, that we're at up here. Uh, I know every state's a little bit different, so I wasn't sure. And I've been waiting uh, a lot for movie theaters to reopen. And so they're going to open here ex- until next week. Oh, okay. So yeah, we, we're even a little bit ahead of you because I think we've got quite a few that have, have already opened up here. Uh, and I will have two weeks since my Johnson & Johnson vaccine as of Friday. And my plan for Saturday is to go back to the movie theater. And I am really excited about that because there are some movies that you just have to see in a movie theater. They, they work on the small screen, you know, on the TV streaming, but they're just, you need like the epic giant screen or even the Omnimax or the IMAX or the, just the giant 3D over the top stuff. And one of those movies, uh, one of those style of movies is the monster movies when it comes to Godzilla and Kong. And just a couple of weeks ago, well, I think it's a week ago now, uh, mm-hmm. at the end of March, the fourth Godzilla Kong MonsterVerse movie came out, which is finally the Godzilla versus Kong, which they've been building to for four different movies. And I'm sure I would enjoy it on the small screen, but I've been seen all the other ones in the theater. And so on Saturday, my hope is to go and see the sort of one that they've all been leading up to with Godzilla versus Kong. And as I started to think about that, how you've got these movies that have come out over the span of seven years and they have led to this one moment, uh, it really reminded me, and this also because we mentioned Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is out, of how the Marvel Cinematic Universe was really quite unique in its scale and tying everything together. Like we mentioned with the reveal at the end of episode three, where I didn't even see that character or that plot line coming back in. And it came back in because they're so good at bringing all those things together, but that's not something that has always been done well. And I don't know that any movie cinematic universe has ever done it on the scale of the Marvel cinematic universe. So I decided to start looking at some of the different cinematic universes and decide figuring out which ones worked, which ones didn't, uh, which ones I'd completely forgot about. And of course, this, as many of the A-sides do, will end with the top five uh, because I always used to love the David Letterman top 10 list, uh, but 10 is way too long for a podcast, so we'll just do five. Uh, so we will end with the top five cinematic universes, in my opinion. Uh, universe I uh, at the end of this A side. But this all started because of Godzilla versus Kong, which has come out this weekend. And I knew that there were these movies that were building towards this sort of giant Royal Rumble movie, uh, but I hadn't really thought too much about them. And I was like, I enjoyed them, but had they been a success? So I started to dig in and the four monster universe or the monster verse movies as they are called uh starting with godzilla in 2014 uh then it was kong skull island in 2017 there was godzilla king of the monsters which came out in may of 2019 then of course the big battle royale godzilla versus kong which has just come out last week Turns out they were actually super successful. I thought maybe I was the only one who loved them because I wasn't really paying attention to the international box office. Uh, They did pretty well in the U.S. I mean, Godzilla in 2014 grossed over $200 million in the U.S. alone, uh, but they've done way better internationally. Um, Maybe, you know, that is part because Godzilla and Kong are international 
characters. They're not like Captain America, who is very much a one country centric character. Godzilla and Kong uh, are all over the world and they also did not originate as an American story. Uh, so internationally, Godzilla made $328 million for a worldwide total of half, over half a billion dollars, $529 million. Kong, Skull Island, which I thought of the four, I didn't really enjoy that much, but it's probably because I'm more of a Godzilla guy than a Kong guy. I'm not sure why. Uh, it grossed all even more worldwide, almost 400 million, even though it took in less than the U.S. in 168 million. It came in worldwide at 566 when you combine both the U.S. and the international markets. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, which introduced Millie Bobby Brown is one of the main characters uh, who connects with Godzilla. Uh, that one barely snuck over a hundred million dollars in the U.S. So maybe that impacted why I thought it was not as big a success, but still made almost $300 million internationally and almost $400 million worldwide. So in those three movies alone, you've got almost $1.5 billion worth of gross, which is a pretty impressive total. Uh, and then Godzilla versus Kong, which hopefully I will see on Saturday, uh, in its first week alone, has made over almost $50 million in the U.S. and $237 million internationally. So in one week of U.S. release, and I'm not sure how long it's been released uh, elsewhere, uh, maybe it was released earlier in different countries, but it's almost made $300 million already. So you've got four movies in a very successful MonsterVerse, which have almost grossed $1.8 billion, which has to put the Godzilla monster, Godzilla Kong, Mothra, the whole monsterverse up there in terms of successful shared universes over the last few years. And then I started to think of some of the unsuccessful ones. And one of this frustrations for big comic book fans is we've had this amazing, successful, integrated, well-designed, as you mentioned, Brooke, where they seem to be able to take, you know, a joke from a movie five years ago or a line or a throwback and meld it all together in this intricate weave and tapestry of storytelling that the Marvel Cinematic Universe can do crazy things like have WandaVision, which is seemingly a sitcom about two superheroes and make it work. And then they can do classic action more like the Falcon and Winter Soldier and it all works together. Uh, the as good as Marvel has done with that, there is, of course, the disappointment uh, for the DC Cinematic Universe and how it's never really worked. There have even uh, been reports now that with the success of the Zack Snyder cut, then maybe they have they will take that momentum and try to create more of an integrated universe. But for the last few years, you've seen, you know, successful one-off movies like wonder woman was a very good movie the first, the first wonder one. woman was great yeah, the first one was great and it didn't need any really any connection with batman or superman it was just a really good movie i loved shazam with uh oh shazam was wonderful yeah that was uh, what, what, what the guy from uh chuck um zach uh braff is it zach braff no it's it's not it's um it's not exact rough. It's a, uh, oh, now I can't think of it. If you hadn't said it, I would have been able to tell you. Yeah, it's not Zach Braff because Zach Braff was the guy from uh, Scrubs. Right. So Eli, I'm, I'm uh, way no, off. Levy, uh, gee whiz. I'm just throwing out names here. Yo, you're, you're really close though. Uh, what, what, uh, Zachary what, Levi. Zachary Levi, okay. That one was great. And I almost, I completely forgot that that was going to be that was a dc cinematic universe movie it was just a fun movie mm -hmm. and now they've got black adam which is um uh the rock is playing black adam and it's, it's coming out in a few i think next summer uh but they're starting to see things on instagram and they what dc has done well is made those one-off movies i think aquaman for all of its flaws, was an interesting and fun one-off movie. But when you take all of these really powerful characters and good stories and try to jam them into one thing, it just bleh. I mean, Batman versus Superman was awful. Bad. 
it's not good. And so, and I've always said that, that what makes Mar- Marvel's characters were always about more about teams and about groups and DC was more about one individuals and their movies have really shown that. I mean, Marvel works because everything's integrated because all of their greatest heroes are teams. Whereas in DC, all of their greatest heroes kind of do it themselves and don't really need any help. And when you put a bunch of, you know, type A personalities in one spot and they can't all be the be all end all. So DC struggles. Maybe they'll figure it out after the whole uh, Zack Snyder cut of the Justice League. We'll see. People seem to really like it. I was like, eh, it's just slightly different colors and much longer. Um, There was another cinematic universe that had a ton of steam that was going to get all these huge stars involved. Uh, People like Tom Cruise and Johnny Depp and Russell Crowe. And it was the dark universe. It was going to be these classic horror villains, whether it was the mummy or Frankenstein or the invisible man or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And they put all of this money into the idea that they were building this universe and this horror, this horror film universe. And then the first one to come out, which would have been, you know, analogous to uh, Iron Man with uh, you kind of launching the whole universe was the mummy with Tom Cruise. And it felt like, and I remember saying this when I saw the previews for the movie, the mummy, it felt like it was like a decade at a time. Like it should have come out in the early two thousands or even it was like a little too close to the Brendan Fraser the mummies from the the 90s which i loved but they were trying so hard and they still thought okay tom cruise is this huge star so he's going to be able to to carry it and we're just going to do a ton of special effects and we're going to put all these people in the movie and that'll make everything cool and it just absolutely bombed so the mummy made less than 90 million dollars in its theatrical run any movie that they in the 2000s where someone refers to Tom Cruise as young man, it's not a good movie. Yeah, no, no, it is not. Uh, yeah, it made uh, it was an absolute flop. And as we mentioned, the uh, Godzilla versus Kong has already made almost 300 million in a couple weeks out, and the mummy couldn't even get close to that and it's an entire run. So it basically, it was so bad. That movie flopped so hard that even though in the movie, they have like a backdoor sort of introduction of Russell Crowe as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They just never made it. They were like, well, we're done. Shut everything down. We've lost so much money. There's a horrible idea. And then to their credit, and I have heard really good things about this movie, but I, I believe that I think, Brooke, I think you've seen it. The Invisible Man oh, it's that good. came out from, from Blumhouse. Yeah. So it seems like they figured out like, okay, doing this like big blockbuster, huge budget, big stars isn't going to work. And th- what we need to do is focus on, you know, smaller films that really focus on the horror. And that's why they, they said that the Invisible Man and oh, I forget her named the actress who was is in Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss. Moss. Yeah. Who is in um Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale. Tale. Uh was Handmaid's Maid's Tale. Not, there's only one. Um what? If they do things more like that, uh is it Handmaid's Tale or Handmaid Handmaid's is plural? Handmaid's Tale. Maids. Okay. Maids. Apostrophe. I was trying to get the name it's right. like she is telling Oh it's possessive. Plural. Yeah. Gotcha. Possessive, not plural. Uh if they keep if they decide to make the movies more like that, they may have a better chance of, of making uh, a little bit more impact within the film world. In fact, uh, there was a gentleman who was a film studies professor at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. Shout out to Lincoln, which was 20 miles away from where I was born in Seward. My mom taught there. Uh, his name was Wheeler Winston Dixon, and he is the author of A History of Horror. He said that the reason the Invisible Man movie worked is because it was stripped down, it dealt with violent emotions and violent themes, and they're designed to horrify 
not inspire awe. And that takes economy. So if they continue to make movies within that vein, like Invisible Man, maybe the dark universe will have uh, a second life, but it's certainly not going to be Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, Russell Crowe, giant blockbusters. Uh, another one that completely failed was Sony and their amazing Spider-Man reboot with Andrew Garfield. Uh, they hoped to spin off into a Sinister Six movie. Uh, there was talk of Black Cat and using all of the Spider-Man characters and creating their own universe that completely bombed to the point where they decided to give Spider-Man back to the MCU for a couple movies. And then accidentally this movie that they that was just going to be a throwaway. Venom grosses almost $900 million and they decide that they're going to start a whole another Spider-Verse again. So we'll see if Sony has any success with that. Uh, there were two that never even made it off the ground. Warden Brothers and Guy Ritchie were creating a King Arthur universe. And Sony also tried to do a Robin Hood universe. And both of these were similar in that their whole plan was to make individual movies about the characters leading up to a big team movie. So just like Marvel Cinematic Universe at Iron Man and the Hulk and Thor and Captain America and brought them all together at the Avengers, Guy Ritchie and, w and uh, WB Warner Brothers were going to have a King Arthur and then a Merlin and then a Lancelot movie and maybe a Galahad movie and bring them all together for the Knights of the Round Table. And Sony wanted to do the same thing with Robin Hood and his Merry Men and have a Robin Hood movie and a Will Scarlet movie and a Little John movie and then bring them all together. Uh, evidently, those were such great ideas that they never even got off the floor uh, of the studio and never got made. Although I would be interested to see Guy Ritchie doing uh, that style of movie, bringing a lot of different movies. I feel like he has the storytelling that could bring a lot of uh, different threads together, but uh, maybe, maybe not with the King Arthur universe. Creating a cinematic universe uh, is not new. Uh, a shared universe is also something that happens within the literary world. Uh, one of our previous podcasts, we talked about Stephen King a little bit and his use of a pseudonym to try out new books. Uh, when he was doing that, he later had to retcon things because he says all of his books uh, happen within the same universe. Uh, so when he was writing as somebody else, uh, later they had to kind of sneak those in for thinner. Another one, one of my favorite uh, stories about book names is uh, the author Brett Easton Ellis, who was best known probably to most people for American Psycho. But he has an entire collection of six movies and a short film or six books, I'm sorry, and a short story that many of them were made into movies, which all take place within the same universe and uh, sort of orbit this college called Camden College, where everybody in all of these different movies, whether it was American Psycho or Less Than Zero, The Rules of Attraction, uh, and three other movies in a short story, all had connections to Camden College. And Camden College was sort of the nexus of all of these people just being really mean to each other and being emotionally and physically abusive and psycho killers and uh, all connected to that one college, which I don't know what Brett Easton Ellis's college years were like, but he based it off of his, uh, his college that he went to. Uh, so that is a little disturbing. Uh, if Bennington College, which is where Ellis attended is anything like the fiction Camden College. Uh, there were a lot of bad folks. Uh, college seems to specialize in drug abuse, uh, sexual shenanigans, emotional breakdowns, uh, without ever talking about any sort of major. So uh, also a lot of his books are named after Elvis Costello songs, which I'm a big Elvis Costello fan. And in a backwards way, that led me to reading more Brett Easton Ellis books. So that brings us to the top five shared cinematic universes in Adam's opinion. This is only in Adam's opinion. There is no actual scientific basis for this, but I did uh, look up what the, where the idea of a shared universe came from so I could make sure that my five fit the criteria. So the idea of a shared universe uh, first came in 1970 by a historian of comic books named Don Markson. 
And his, he had five different criteria. And these were specific to comic books, so you have to stretch them a little bit uh, for movies. Uh, but number one, if characters A and B have met, then they are in the same universe. If characters B and C have met, then transitively, A and C are in the same universe. So if A meets B and B meets C, then A is just one degree removed from C, so they must be in the same universe. Uh, characters cannot be connected by real people. Otherwise, uh, any movie that had you know, like a president like Kennedy in it would have to all happen in the same universe and that simply wouldn't work very well. Uh, characters cannot be connected by characters that do not originate with the publisher. Uh, so otherwise it could be argued that Superman and Fantastic Four were both in the same universe as they both interacted with a character called Hercules and Hercules being a classic uh, mythic character is in a lot of different publishers so they can't clearly be the same hercules kind of a, a fictional take on that can't be a famous real person uh, and then fictionalized versions of real people are can be used as connections say like jerry lewis who was evidently jerry lewis had his own comic book at one point called the adventures of jerry lewis uh, but he was distinct from the actual real jerry lewis because he was a housekeeper with magical powers. Uh, specific versions of public domain fictional characters such like Hercules could be used within the Marvel universe or Robin Hood in you know, DC comics could be used to connect people as well. Uh, and then his very last one was characters can only be considered if they have met, if they appeared together on panel in a story. So I take that last one because it's very comic centric to be be mentioned or to have a connection within, so like Camden College in the Brett Easton Ellis universe or uh, the Spider-Man in some of the Amazing Spider-Man movies. So top five shared cinematic universes as according to Adam. Number five, and I completely forgot about this one, which is sad because I probably have seen Mallrats it's probably in my top 10 most watched movies of all time, but it is the View Askew universe, the Kevin Smith universe where he created, first starting with Clerks and Mallrats and Dogma and Chasing Amy, all the Jay and Silent Bob movies uh, have all been connected in the same universe. And you'll have characters, most notably Jay and Silent Bob, who appear in almost every movie, except uh, I think they appear in every single movie. Uh, or are mentioned as the comic book characters because in Chasing Amy, uh, Bluntman and Chronic are the comic book characters that uh, Ben Affleck's character is working on and then they are the ones that become the movie for Jay and Silent Bob, Strike Back and that sort of thing. So uh, that one, which has continued to expand, uh, there are Clerks 3 and the next uh, Mallrats movie, which I think it's like, two years down the road because everything got bumped back uh, because of the pandemic, uh, we'll continue to expand on the universe. Number four, uh, another one that I hadn't thought about in a long time was the alien, aliens and predator versus aliens versus predator uh, connected universe. Uh, they both started out as completely independent things with alien, aliens, alien two, alien three and predator and predator two. And then the studio decided to mash them together with aliens versus predator uh, and have had several incarnations of that uh, and creating this entire universe where you've got these two different alien species, uh, which are apex predators and eventually collide, not unlike Godzilla and Kong kind of bringing it all back together with a battle royale. Uh, number three of the all-time shared cinematic universes, and this may offend some of our listeners, uh, with it being number three, is Star Trek. I think Star Trek did an amazing job with all of the different ways that they have told stories, whether that was starting out with the original series or then The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager. Uh, they've gone on to do Enterprise, which was a prequel to everything, and they've even got a cartoon now called Dex Below, which is on the Paramount Plus, which I have not dived in, but they're expanding that. Uh, they did a, one of the best ways of rebooting a franchise by taking advantage of time travel and being able to honor the existing stories, but then have an entirely new uh, timeline with the Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto uh, and J.J. Abrams Star Trek's 
Uh, they've done a great job of continuing to reinvent things. Uh, Picard just came back last year, and now I hear there's another season of Picard coming. Uh, really interesting way to continue to expand the universe and always find new ways to tell stories uh, with it being all connected, but never solely uh, existing around one family or one storyline. Uh, number two does tend to exist around one family and one storyline, but they do it very well and did it so well at the beginning and have done a much better job over the last few years of expanding that reach of the universe and telling stories that happen within the universe without focusing on that family. And that is of course, Star Wars, which you got the nine films that deal with the Skywalker saga. Uh, but really if over the last probably 10 to 15 years, the best, you know, in my opinion, some of the best work that's been created are the stories told on the periphery, whether that is The Mandalorian, which has been a huge success, or Rogue One, which is just an incredible war movie. And it feels like it could be similar to like Battle of the Budge or the Bulge or Dirty Dozen or Sands of Iwo Jima. It's just, it is a, a war movie, a spy movie, a caper, uh, just happens to be in space. I mean, Solo, everybody ragged on it, but I enjoyed it. It's a heist film. And you look at all the cartoons and how they've expanded the world, whether it was uh, Clone Wars or Rebels or uh, some of the games that they've gone into and all of the books that they've created. I'm actually reading uh, right now a new one called uh, Star Wars, the High Republic series, Light of the Jedi. And it goes back thousands of years before any of the Skywalkers were involved or even Palpatine and talks about like the height of the Jedi uh, and kind of builds back that lore as well. So it's done an amazing job of creating, uh, there have been some missteps. Uh, they had an entire expanded universe that they, when Disney bought them, they just deleted. Uh, and a lot of that, they call it legends now. It's like the Apocrypha, uh, the books that were taken out of the Bible, but in some Bibles just get stuck at the back, even though, you know, they're not considered inspired works. They did the same thing with the, with some really great stories in the Star Wars universe. And I wish they hadn't done that, especially the Timothy Zahn trilogy, uh, which is amazing. Uh, starting with uh, Heir to the Empire, um, those books should have been the next three movies, but no one had the guts to make them. Uh, and of course, then number one in the top five shared cinematic universes of all time uh, did things on and it continues to do things on a scope that has never been seen before uh, with a connection and ability to weave stories together, callbacks, jokes, uh, creating a depth of a universe that has not really been seen, especially uh, on the big screen for that many movies. And that's, of course, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I know, and I've been talking with some friends who have not jumped in because it's like, oh, there's just so many movies and I wasn't big into comic books and I don't know these characters. And you, you just got to pick one and go. You can jump in at any point. If that's Falcon and Winter Soldier, even though some of these callbacks are great for the people who are watching, you can watch and enjoy the series. There is no point in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe where you couldn't jump in and be fine. They do a great job of bringing you up to date and letting you know what's going on and making things accessible. And to have that happen over 23 movies and how many TV series and all the, you know, extra scenes at the end of movies is uh, something I think we'll probably never be able to see again, to have this level of integration. And it amazes me that they continue to do it so well. And at some point, they've got to make a misstep. And I don't know when that's going to be. And the longer they don't, the less likely it seems that they will. So it's kind of amazing. So those are my top five shared cinematic universes. And if you've seen Godzilla versus Kong already, and you have anything to let me know about it before I go this weekend, uh, this comes out on Friday, I'm going on Saturday, send us a message immediately so I can know what to expect, what to look for on Saturday when I go to Godzilla versus Kong. Mothra kills everybody. No, I'm just kidding. 
especially all the sweaters, all the sweaters just eats them to death. Uh, uh, uh. We know you talked about Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I always find this really funny. The very, very first Marvel movie ever, Howard the Duck. Oh, yeah, because it's because it's canon. Because mm-hmm. he's in he's in Guardian of the Galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I don't know why I love that oh. fact, but I used to love that movie. So that fact just cracks me up. Yeah, that I mean, and the funny thing is that like it fits that kind of sort of quirky humor, like a little bit different. Like it, it fits, especially with Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get out of here, I want to leave you with something that you probably don't think about. So Today, uh, on the B side, we we talked about Marie Besnard, who got away with murder, basically. But many times, yeah, a people, lot of murders, a lot of murders. But many times, people don't get away with them. And in some states, you know, they still have death row. And just because you're on death row doesn't mean that you, um, well, you don't have a sense of humor. <laughs> And I found this article that just kind of made me chuckle that at the most terrifying moment of your life, you still have a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So some last words, some funny last words, death, uh, last words by death row inmates. I thought that'd be because she got away with murder. We got to have some kind of justice, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we have to have some some genuine, some closing it up. So George Apple, who had been given the death sentence for killing a police officer in 1928, uttered this. Well, gentlemen, you're about to see a baked apple. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it makes sense. Like, if you're on death row, you've got nothing but time to think. It's true. You're like, you got to be like, what am I going to say? Like, this is what my one moment. Um, James Fry, who was the only prisoner executed in the United States in 1966, he was actually sentenced to life in prison for committing a first degree murder. And then it was upgraded to um, death after he murdered a cellmate. <sighs> James oh, French. It's like that's not the that's not the upgrade you want to get. No, I think I said his name wrong. It's James French. He said, okay. "How's this for a headline? French fries." But <laughs> I'm. <laughs> I mean, come on. Hey, I, I, if I, if you're going out, at least he's going out on his terms. Right. Um, Jeffrey David Matthews who was scheduled to be executed by lethal injection on June 17, 2010 for murdering his great uncle 17 years earlier Uh, he says I think the governor's phone is broke he hadn't called yet (laughs) (laughs) somebody want to check on that can you check that dial tone is it is it working this thing so it's just i when you are into true crime you have a morbid sense of humor as do some of these most of these criminals so i thought we didn't get justice with marie besnard but at least we know these guys did have an ending but at least they had something funny to say at the end yeah i mean the, the the gallows humor very much so of course, you can always, uh, we would love it if you would support the podcast. There's several ways to do that. You can head on over to Apple and give us a rating and or review and review. Also, you can buy us a coffee, buymeacoffee.com slash pod. Of course, you can interact with us on any of the socials. We have a Facebook, we have an Instagram, we have a Twitter We also have a website. All of our sources will be posted on our website. We have a YouTube channel. You can check out the stories on YouTube as well. Those videos are posted on our website. So if you don't have time to 
uh, log into Apple or Spotify or anything like that, or you're on our website and you're looking at the pictures and the sources and you want to listen to the podcast while you're doing it, you can do it right there. It's a side B side podcast dot square dot site. While you're there, you can check out some merch. Also, don't forget to check out that picture on Instagram. And if you're interested in that shirt, you know, just let me know. I can do a special order for you. <laughs> and I just got my, my, my hoodie with the uh, cassette tape uh, logo on it. And I will tell you, they are pretty darn comfy. It's, it's high quality stuff. I, that's why I have so many. I wear them constantly. They're very, very comfortable. Very comfortable. I don't do shabby. No, absolutely not. High quality stuff. <laughs> of course, there's several different t-shirt uh, and sweatshirt designs. There's blankets, there's puzzles. All of that's on our website. Again, asidebsidepodcast.square.site. All right, there you go. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Brooke. This is Kevin Armstrong, your host for Movie Battle. Each episode, we take two films and put a super fan of each against one another to decide which one is best. The only rule we have is that you come correct. If you're interested in being a guest on Movie Battle, please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. As always, thank you for listening to A-Side, B-Side podcast. If you enjoy the show, please, if you don't mind, head on over to Apple and leave us a rating or a review. And if you'd like to continue to support the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to Patreon or you can buy us a coffee, as well as buying merch on our website, asidebsidepodcast.square.site. From Adam and I at A-Side, B-Side podcast, please remember to wear your mask, social distance if you're around people that don't live in your household, and just be safe and happy. Thanks again from us here at A-Side B-Side Podcast.